Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. These dreams go on when I close my eyes. Every second of the night, I live another life. These dreams that sleep when it's cold outside. Hi, this is Nancy Wilson of Heart. My favorite Led Zeppelin song is The Ocean. You and The album came out like the first week it was out. They named me the best new artist of the week. Come on up for a rise, yeah. Come on up, lay your hands in mine. I think Anne learned a lot of her singing take from Robert Plant. I am just a poor boy, though my story is seldom told. I have squandered my resistance for a pocket full of mumbles. Hello and welcome. This is The Rock Podcast. I'm Denny Somak, along with my co-host, Anita Gevinson. Hi. Hi, Danny. How you doing? Good and boy, we had a we had a great couple of weeks. Um, you know, we uh, we talked to uh, Nancy Wilson, and it was great. I mean, I didn't want it to end. She, just, I know, you know I want. I, yeah, it was kind of like we were at lunch with her. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and we didn't want the waiter to bring over the bill. We wanted to keep sitting there, but we knew the table was going to be needed, <laughs> so we had to get up and leave. Yeah, she was so amazing and and revealing and honest. She's just so. Uh, She's so cool and doesn't try to be and is uh, got so many revealing stories about other musicians, too. You know, she talks about Pearl Jam and, of yeah. course, Led Zeppelin and Sammy Hagar and, of course, Eddie Van Halen and and, and she's just Lane Stanley. And yeah. she's just got great stories. And I really love her new album. I was so happy that I loved it, you know, because it was mm-hmm. so easy for me to to be complimentary it's such a great new album and i you'll get to hear what her plans are for uh touring with heart and uh an event that's coming up on july 9th which is so exciting and and then yeah she's going to be playing live with the seattle symphony, symphony orchestra. orchestra yes and it'll be and, online and right. you can go to her website and get more info and it's I, for I, a charity think, yeah. so they're expensive tickets and not many people are going but they're going to yeah. stream the whole thing not live and songs from the new album right. uh which is a great idea and then we talked to uh someone who I really have been fascinated by for years Linda Perry uh, you might know her as the lead singer from Four Non Blondes uh but she's so much more I like to describe Linda it's as if Keith Richards and Patti Smith had a baby, you know? Yeah, she, you're right. And by the way, I loved her in Four Non Blondes. And that song is just... It was great. It was amazing. Yeah. She's got a great, great voice. Uh, and yet that was just uh, the beginning for her. She became one of the most successful songwriters uh, for Gwen Stefani and Pink and Christina Aguilera and songs that you probably played at your wedding were written by <laughs> Linda Perry, you know, just such an unlikely person to get into the pop world. And uh, who's her fa- one of her, her favorite bands? 
of Led Zeppelin. So both of these, both of these musicians and both of these uh, uh, incredible musicians and singers in Linda's case uh, are all about Led Zeppelin. So like, yeah, that that's what brought them together. And you know how much uh, you are, Denny. So this must've been a dream for you to find two people that, were as much into Led Zeppelin as you are. It was accidental. I was trying to think, now what goes with this? And then I remembered and we had so much fun talking to her. Yeah. They, it was, yeah, both great conversations and we're really excited to share them with you. So we're going to play Nancy uh, first. Nancy will be up. And then on the other side of Nancy, we'll come back and introduce uh, Linda. And uh, I think you're going to really enjoy this, uh, this show. Hi, Nancy Wilson. Thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your very cool life to spend a little time <laughs> with Denny and myself. Um, I, you know, we're, we're at the advantage here because we know everything about you, but uh, I just wanted you to know. So uh, I spent my entire life as a disc jockey on the radio uh, playing your albums and all the other rock music, 10 years in Philadelphia, where I'm from, and then moved to LA. And I've been here ever since. And Denny, why don't you tell Nancy about you? Uh, this is the first time we've ever worked together, but we're from the same I was on the radio in Philly for many years, and then I was at NBC. And I've interviewed you a couple times over the years uh, yeah. about the uh, Beatles. And you're in my Led Zeppelin book. I wrote the book, Get the Lead Out, How Led Zeppelin Became the Biggest Band in the World. And the two of you are, are one of the chapters in it. So, Oh, fantastic. If you don't recall, I'll send you a new copy. You can if you'd like. Okay. I, you remember I, to give me an address when we're done. I moved to a new location, so I'll give you my new address. Okay, great. Both remember when Dreamboat Annie came out, just so you know. <laughs> That's right. No. That's right. I mean, the day so, it came out, we remember. We remember yeah. who brought it to us. We remember playing it on the radio instantly. It was just phenomenal. Back in the year of our Lord, 1976. <laughs> <laughs> and we lived through the whole magazine thing, and you can't play this, and you can't play that. And you got to, oh, it was uh, just amazing. Oh, what a career. Yeah, 16 hard albums, 35 million albums sold, and your first solo record. I just have to tell you, I, I love it so much. Uh, it's called oh. You and Me, eight original songs, and some really tasty covers. So where did you record it and tell us who's on it? And then we're going to talk all about it, please. Well, thank you for one thing. Um, it's really funny. You guys have to know this. I, uh, when it, the album came out, like the first week it was out, there was a Billboard article in Billboard magazine, if you recall, Billboard. Yes, um, we, we know. We were all due. Um, they named me the best new artist of the week. <laughs> and I was like, Jeff, my husband, told me this. Like, you just got named Best New Artist of the Week. I'm like, am I a new artist? Wait a second. <laughs> How did that happen, you know, after almost 50 years? But, um, yeah, so I moved up to Northern California pretty recently, but right for, in time for the shutdown. And, um, you know, there's a, a music space here uh, above the garage. It's an apartment a separate apartment where I figured like maybe now I'll finally get a home studio under my belt, like for the first time ever. And now that there's a shutdown and I can't pack, you know, repack my bags after doing laundry and going through my mail and going back and getting on a tour bus again, you know, to go out on and on tour with heart. There's, I can't do that. So 
why don't I get creative and do something on my own for what people have been asking me to do for so long? Um, why don't you ever make a solo album? So I was like, okay, I'll make a solo album. So I got busy writing new stuff and kind of uh, creating tracks in my home, my new home studio. Um, I could make a big mess and make a lot of noise and just leave it there, you know? So totally a, a beautiful situation for me to have moved here right at this time. And um, I kind of actually uh, got reconnected to my sort of my college girl self that I started out be when I was first joined heart. That's kind of who I was, you know, I was like 19 when I really joined the army and saw the world, you know, with heart. So I was just kind of inspired to take the downtime and create something meaningful and tell my stories, you know, I have a lot of stories to tell. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I I got busy and started writing and hooked up with Sue Ennis, who I've written a lot with in the past decades, you know, with Heart, and now for this album too. And I just had a blast, you know, doing it. I, I would make demos by myself. You know, I have a girlfriend um, that knows how to run the tech the interface stuff for me because I really don't have time for that. I, I really am not a techie, you know, obviously. Yeah. Join the club. <laughs> yeah. And I just don't want to be bothered with it. So, so I got a, you know, a smart friend to, to run the gear and, uh, you know, show me how to hook it up. And then I'd send, um, the guys in Seattle that all have been heart players just recently, even, um, all my players are in Seattle, so I would just send them. My guy in Denver, who's like a tech, my other tech, you know, um, first engineer guy, he'd put it in a Dropbox. He'd send that track to the drummer, Ben, and Andy, the bass player. You know, after each time they would put a part on, I would check it and then make a fix or approve it and then send it to the next guy and the next guy and the next guy for the bass and the drums and the guitar and the keyboards. So each time I would approve each part and then finish my parts to that part and keep sending the, you know, the files around. So the Dropbox was, you know, burning hot. It was like, you know, turning red with, you know, it was, it was on fire. The, the Dropbox was on fire that year. <laughs> And it took her, took all year, but um, but I really know these players, and I love playing with these players, and so I know how to play with those guys. And we just did a huge tour recently together, you know. And so it's like I know Ben, the drummer, is gonna how he's gonna fill into that chorus area. So I know what to leave out so that he can leave it, put it in. As players, we just we read each other's minds, and so the outcome I think overall was very sounded very together in the same room, even though it completely was not. Interestingly, yeah. The songs that you wrote um, were they songs you wrote specifically currently, or were some of them possibly from previous 
time and you just never got around to finishing it? What's Yeah, well, all of the above. A couple of the songs I just newly wrote newly recently, um, you know, just trying to reach back to into my little toolkit, my creative toolkit as a sort of a college college girl ish person. And but then the song um The Dragon was written in the early nineties when Lane Staley was still around and all those guys in the Seattle scene were still buddies and we were partying a lot and um I saw with Lane, I just, I cared about the guy and I, I saw him heading for disaster <laughs> with his addiction. And a lot of those guys, you know, obviously were heading in the same direction and a lot of them didn't make it. But, um, I saw that one coming and that's what the song I, I wrote the song about. The song never really gelled into a, a heart song. We tried it a few times and then I made a version of it with Road Case Royale. Um, more recently, but uh, but the guy at the record company, um, Carry On Music, my guy um, Tom Lipsky said, I love that song. You've got to put the dragon on your new album. And I said, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you did. And he's right. He was right. You know, already. So there's a couple of things like that that have been floating around um, for a little while. But for the most part, the, the new stuff is pretty new. Well, the title track, I found it, I, I'm listening to it and, I, and I'm bawling, you know, watching the video. I, I don't know if that's what you were going for, but, but, but in a good way, the kind of crying that makes you feel better afterwards, uh, especially uh, the end of the video in the ocean. I mean, I just, I lost it, but I really think that song is Beatlesque. It's just so beautiful. It reminded me of how I felt when I used to listen to the Beatles and they would produce these incredibly beautiful songs that were so, uh, well, just uh, the melodies were, uh, you know, instantly you remember them. It's just a, a beautiful song. So congratulations on that. That was, wow. that's how it starts, you know, and then it just gets better. Uh, that's amazing. It, you say it that No, way. I, I, I mean that. I mean that. Because it's really a, it is really a, a tip of the hat to a Beatlesque type of a song. It's very, um, you know, me and Sue Ennis again, um, we're besties, you know, and we, we really love working on stuff together. We've done some script writing and we've done songwriting and we're just besties. And um, she had a song called follow me for her mom after her mom passed away a few years ago now, of course. And then I had a, a poem I wrote for my mom called you and me and gravity. And um, so said, Hey, she reminded me that she had this cool like little song started on a demo. And I was like, Oh God, remember that song now that I'm not on the road and I'm not completely, you know, a blur of activity. Um, that song really affected me. I remember crying the first time I heard it. And she's, and I, I said, how about these words? And why don't we make a hybrid mom song, you know, with each other. And so that's kind of how that happened. And then when it, when it became you and me, the song you and me, I felt it was so like um, kind of a radical, uh, brave thing to, to call the album. Like it's so personal and it's so ra- radically honest 
<laughs> you know, it's, it's a revolutionary act to be that, you know, pure with it. And um, you don't get that much these days. No, <laughs> you don't. No, you don't. So, well, yeah. So that's that's kind of what I think what hits people a lot about that because it's so personal and it's so honest and it's so, um, I mean, it was a real line to walk trying to make that song happen because it was just on the edge of too sweet at all times. So we had to pull it back with words like gravity, you know, and take it arm's length a little bit so that it wasn't quite so overtly embarrassingly sweet. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You could be nauseous. It gets too sweet. (laughs) So daughter, the Pearl Jam song, your interpretation of it, just stop me cold because, you know, a lot of times with Eddie Vedder, you don't really know the lyrics that much. And there are so many different interpretations of the song and what you did with it was so brilliant. And that video was just, I mean, the end is you just, you can't, it's, it's, it's amazing. And, and, and a great song, you know, when I was on the radio, uh, people would call and they would request that song. And, uh, I, I had a laugh because, you know, they wanted to dedicate it to their daughter and they've totally missing <laughs> the entire, you know, daddy loves you very much, you know, no, not really. But yeah, so that, that was amazing. Um, your whole thing with the uh, Pearl Jam is, is fascinating to me because um, I guess you met Mike McCready during Almost Famous. Was that the? Oh, um, my, my best friend, Kelly Curtis, was their manager forever. Okay. Even when they were Mother Love Bone, and then they were Pearl Jam. Andrew Woods was the first singer in uh, Mother Love Bone, right? And most of the rest of the band was the same. When we came back to Seattle after the 80s, and it was now the 90s, it was the Seattle explosion going on, uh, my friend Kelly said, okay, um, our singer just died of an overdose come to this memorial party at this house and meet everybody in town so we went there and bring your dogs because it'll be more cheerful for people to see dogs there so we did and we met all those guys at at that party um you know laughing and crying kind of stuff and so the alice guys and the pearl jam guys and you know, Screaming Trees and Mark Arm and everybody. So <clears throat> we became a tight-knit little community. We thought we thought those guys were going to hate us after the 80s, you know, after the MTV hair, Brand X 80s and all that. So they were really sweet, great communal spirit, supportive Seattle music, you know, community spirit. And um, we stayed tight with them ever since. So when Lane was starting to kind of go down the path, that's, you know, why the dragon happened. And and then later when I was in, I was actually in Austin before the whole pandemic happened. <laughs> Can you believe that even? <laughs> I still don't believe uh, what we've just been through. But um, I was in Austin w- recording with this guy named Eric Tesmer, who's an incredible guitar player from Austin and his producer, David Rice. Anyway, we made some tracks for his EP and um, I'd had an, uh, I'd ask for a film 
called I Am All Girls to do a song for the film. So I figured daughter would be perfect because it talks about a young girl. It talks about she holds the hand and it holds her down. And it's right on point for what mm. the movie's about. So, which is human trafficking. And it's a true story about a girl who comes back to um, pay the predator back. <laughs> as, as a yeah. And that video is just incredible. Incredible. And, and the cranberries dreams, the late Dolores O'Riordan, that is a beautiful cover. Bruce Springsteen, The Rising, that's a tricky song, right? I mean, that's... I know, I'm trying to rehearse it the last few days. I'm like, Jesus Christ, what did I get myself into? Because it's it's like a novel. It, yeah, yeah. And of course, I'm trying to play it and sing it at the same time. It's like, yeah, it, it, well, the way you did the Dream of Life part at the end, that was great. Because I'm thinking, how's she going to do that? You know, because that's... Yeah, and I love that, that that video because you get to see everybody. Yeah, I you like know, that. that, that right, that, that was great. And the boxer, can I just say, the boxer was yeah, Sammy really, Hagar. Was out of left field? <laughs> well, you know, uh, I, I've been singing that song my whole life, basically. Lots of living rooms, you know, kitchens, beach fires. You know, everybody knows the chorus because it's mm. a lot of lie. And... So if somebody knows the verses, you're all set, right? right. So yeah. So then yeah. I was asking Sammy for a favor because my friend Sammy and me, we do a lot of favors for each other. This we is Sammy that. Hagar you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. So you need, need you say more than Sammy. Right? <laughs> he was like, well, all you, okay, I'll do whatever you want me to do for your album. I'll sing something with you, but just don't make it a big rock song whatever you do. So it's too, way too predictable. So I'm like, well, what about the boxer? And he's like, I love that song. Yeah. That's unexpected. Yeah. And then he was a boxer himself and his dad too. Right, right. Turns out. So it's kind of like, here is the personification of the actual boxer in the center of the song in the clearing stands the boxer right here. It's Sammy fucking Hagar. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, perfect. And and then Eddie Van Halen, we have to talk about that. I was a little distracted by those purple boots you were wearing in the video. <laughs> that you, oh, my God. Between that and your ring, that skull ring, I just, yeah, I, I know there's a story there, I'm sure. But those purple boots, wow. Yeah, I just that was, boots. Yeah, yeah. So, so the song for Eddie, um <laughs> Just again, you know, I'm bawling by the end of it, and it doesn't even have any words. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it it um, was something that I was requested to do another acoustic instrumental somewhere on the album by one of my um, my manager guys, and uh, I said, "Sure, I'll do it." And not only that, I'll dedicate it to Eddie Van Halen. And then it was like, "Shh, what did I just commit to?" What have I? What have I done? Now I have to live up to that, you know. So it took me a long time to approach just the idea of what was going to be about. Like, how do I do that? How do I? I can't be flashy with it because it's it's an acoustic song. Um, I can't do the you know I can't do that stuff on uh, an acoustic guitar, and I have to honor the spirit of the amazing artist himself. So what do I do? And so I would wake up 
thinking about it and fall asleep stressing about it, thinking and stressing and thinking and stressing. And then, um, then I kind of finally put a, you know, picked up a guitar and it's like, okay, if I tune down to a double drop D tuning and I, and I do some harmonics to start. So then it's going to be kind of like a prayer going up, you know, cause it's got that purity and it's got the major key that would um, allow me to kind of, figure out how to do a piece of jump in there as a tribute to one of his beautiful melodic major key type, you know, songs. Cause that's something about him that I noticed when I was look, watching a lot of his footage again, to think about the song, like how much major he, he, he's not a shredder in the minor typical bluesy key. He's a major key kind of uh, writer. So, that's that's kind of what got me pulled out of my shell about trying to start doing it. And um and I just gave myself permission to just be simple and sweet, you know, and not try to be complicated and difficult about it. And then I think it turned out just just right. Yeah. And yeah, sure did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is yeah. like a Joni Mitchell album for me whereas you can just you put it on, you got to hear the whole thing. Because it just goes through so many stories. And so I don't know how jo- where Joni is in your life, but she's like, you know, right? It all starts and ends with Joni. So I hope you, you take that as a compliment because I really, yeah. She's my muse from the day one, you know, from the very Wow. Time. I didn't know, know that. And I've got to have a couple of dinners with her along the way. Oh, wow. She can tell a story. Let me. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's that like having dinner with her? Come on. Oh, it's just insane. It's like. It's like meeting Paul McCartney or something for me. It's like there's the molecules that exist that make up Joni Mitchell in the in the actual flesh. You know, it's like I can't even be here. It's like too exciting, you know. But um, you just try to act cool, you know, and have your coffee or whatever. But um, she's, you know, she's. I don't think she smokes anymore. She probably forgot how, but she probably had to forget. To yeah, smoke. yeah. But she's she's working with. Uh, my ex actually on a project right now. And I guess she's having more like with, uh, she's got a, she's got a lot of um, hootenannies going on. At her oh, right now. Good to know. I'm so glad. Like Brandy Carlisle. And yeah. Her, yeah. They're all showing up there and they're singing her songs and they're doing Elton songs. They're all chiming in and just keeping the music alive. You know? Oh, that's great to hear. That's Thank great. You. Yes, she's singing great. Yeah. So she, wow. she goes, I'm built, uh, I'm built for disaster. I just, I bounce. <laughs> yeah, there you, yeah. Well, for Denny, I know uh, he shares your passion for Paul McCartney and definitely for all things and all Led Zeppelin moments. And <laughs> well, yeah. let me, let me ask you, first of all, I got it. Cause I, I did interview your sister years ago about this. When I asked her about the Beatles, first thing she said to me was, Row E, seat number, I can't remember. <laughs> she, nothing, she, she knew exactly the seat number. Now, I know you saw them on Sullivan. Were, did you see them live as well? Yeah, in 66. Okay, September 25th in Seattle, right? 1966. It was row uh, E, seat 25. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, when there was a couple of, 
other bands before them who came out and did a couple of like top 40 songs first. And then when they carried out, when Mal Evans carried out Ringo's drum, kick drum, the place just came completely unglued. It was like, it was like day for night. It was just a million flashbulbs, you know, back in the flashbulb era. Mm. Um, but it was like, and the screams started up and it never really stopped until they were up, up playing and, and after they played and left. And it was, it was pretty hard to hear them, but we could hear them just barely well enough to know that they were sounding amazing. They did like Nowhere Man, Paperback Writer, all this rain and all that stuff. Rain is such a good song. Yeah, yeah. So we were just like, we had a band at the time that Rom had made us this matching outfits that matched the Beatles outfits. The, the, uh, the Mandarin collar, khaki ones with the military buttons. Yes. Down, except with skirts instead of slacks, you know. We had our binoculars going and we were the only ones probably in the whole Coliseum that were not screaming, actively screaming. We were <laughs> taking notes. Yeah. We were going to, you know, not meet the Beatles or marry the Beatles. We were going to be the Beatles. Be the Beatles. Right. Yes. I love that. I love that <laughs> distinction. Yes. I, yes. I can. Did you, did you ever have the chance to uh, meet Paul or, or the other members? I met Paul a couple of times in a few couple of different backstage um, before his wings concert mm-hmm. and time before one of his Paul McCartney shows. And uh, you know, is everything you've, hope for as a fan for him to be it's he's completely charming disarming approachable kind uh funny you know and just jaunty you know winking and winking a nudge winking a nod paul he's ever the paul that you want him to be he couldn't be a nicer guy you know um and his new album is really great yeah that yeah God. It's actually really cool. And then there's the remake of of the new album with other singers doing the songs, and that's really cool too. But, you know, he's he's such a consummate, incredible musician. He's written some of the best melodies of time. Yeah, absolutely. He is absolutely. amazing. In fact, since you mentioned that tribute album, just the other day I was talking to uh, Denny Sewell, who was the original drummer in Wings, and is on this new thing. And I was saying, so, you know, of all the times, tell me a story about Paul. Because I remember, you know, we get to his house and we're going to rehearse. And he says, I just got a call. Uh, they want me to write the uh, the theme song for the new James Bond movie. What do you think? So we sit down, we're at his house getting ready to rehearse. And he sits at the piano and he goes, okay, so it's James Bond. So it's got to be like, he said, and within 20 minutes, the song was all done. He wrote it in front of us. I couldn't believe it. Live and Let Die? Yeah. Wow. I believe it. I believe it. He's <laughs> just made his every molecule of him is music. It's like wow. born. He's just born that way, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so when you, met, uh, when you met members of Led Zeppelin, was it as fulfilling? Was it as... Well, it was the first guy we met was Plant in the 70s, the late mm-hmm. 70s. We had played a big festival at Milton Keynes out there in 
in the boondocks in England. Right. A bunch of bands like the Teardrop Explodes and a bunch of those kind of bands. And uh, he, the, the rumor went, was going around that he was going to be there. And everybody said, don't tell Anne, you know, because <laughs> she'll, she'll freak out. She won't be able to play, sing and play. And so he did show up on the side of the stage, sitting cross-legged during the set um, behind a PA column. And I, I saw him there and I was like, oh, I can't play. I can't sing either. So she didn't see because her eyesight's not that good. <laughs> so um, after the show, she was like, who was that cute dude like sitting there? It's like, well, it was none other than Robert fucking Plant. And so he came back and talked to us afterwards, like sitting outside in some folding chairs and really nice, just really spiritual you know, a, a really interesting, um, deep sort of guy, as you would imagine. Mm. Same kind of thing with Paul. You, you, you kind of sense that he would be like really interesting to talk to about things, you know, otherworldly and about music and stuff mm. like that. Other cult- cultures, you know. And so, uh, as he walked away, Anne goes, the air sings around him. <laughs> that's great oh my god that's so perfect that's so Anne uh, the air sing- now you, the- you you contacted John Paul Jones to, to do some arranging how did that come about yeah he um, we were looking for somebody to help us get some live recordings done and we'd always been turned down by lots of different producers so we thought of John Paul Jones because he's always doing weird side projects and um, he said, yeah. So he came to Seattle and we rehearsed a couple of weeks with him and a str- little string section where he wrote a bunch of string parts for. And we went through the catalog and we selected which songs we wanted to record from the heart catalog. And then we made a really cool album out of it um, when the road home. And, uh, you know, it was really a fun project. But every day I was just pinching myself and trying not to gush every day because we were hanging out with him all the time and having coffee and talking about songs. And it's like, because <laughs> this is John Paul Jones. I guess I have a fan's attitude in a lot of about everything, but um, that's the way to. How could you not? How could you not? I mean, I'm like that today. <laughs> Don't forget. We, uh, we actually did that, that Kennedy center honors thing. Right. We, the actual, you know, iconic song of all rock songs, you know, only stairway to heaven in front of God and everybody and the president and Zeppelin himself. And Jason Bonham on drums. Jason on drums, who actually played with Hart before um, a few times. And so, yeah, I think that that situation was a lot about the emotion that those guys had when they reacted to the song. Because Jason Bonham was the little kid, you know, scampering around Zeppelin when they were in rehearsals and in studios and stuff. He was the kid, little kid, like a little <laughs> right. kid. Right. So I think they had a an emotional reaction to him being up there, tributing them in that same way that day. Well, and- it might have had something to do with your performance. Come on. That was... <laughs> You know, it started out good. It started out good. And I was like, wow, they're really going to do this. And then every time I see it, 
and I watch it a lot. <laughs> it builds and builds and I, I'm just completely blown away by the end. And I feel like they were surprised at how well it went. I think that everybody was not to, not because I didn't think you could do it, but because it was just, you did think about all the people that have tried to do it, you know, and they're like, man, and you, you fucking blew the roof off that place that there was nothing you destroyed. You destroyed that day. We took no prisoners. Mm-hmm. We came to play. Yes. And, you and we you came, you saw you. Yeah. You, yeah. Kicked its ass. <laughs> you kicked its ass. That's right. You came, you saw you kicked its ass. Is that, that's a ghostbusters, right? Is it? <laughs> That's right. It's Ghostbusters. Oh my God. Yeah. That was really. Afterwards, each of them came up, you know, there was kind of a governor's ball deal afterward and with dinners and stuff and people, you know, mingling and they came up individually and, and, you know, Robert, well, first Jonesy, John Paul Jones came up and said, Oh, wow, you guys, oh my God. So great to see you do this. And, you did great. And then, um, then John, then, um, then, uh, Robert Plant came up and he said, Oh my God, I've learned to hate this song because everyone murders it so terribly, <laughs> but you guys did great, you know, like way to go. And then, and then, you know, Jimmy Page came up and said, you played that really well. And I was like, <gasps> you know, I, Wow. I believe myself hearing this even and, you know, and I guess you know, do something for almost all your whole life. You you can actually get good at it after a while. <laughs> I think that was a situation where it's like, okay, it's only me starting this iconic song that I've played a million times in my life, but I better get it right this one, this one time for sure. And that, on the um, the one day before a rehearsal, my hands got really frozen waiting for a car outside because it was December. And I was like, oh, no, just run into the rehearsal space and then try to play Stairway to Heaven with cold fingers. And I was like, this is not going well. And so they <laughs> say like the on the rehearsal the night before a big performance, it's a good um, it's good luck if you fuck it up. <laughs> and, and I did. And they were like, um, oh, well, maybe we could just shadow you and play behind you. And I'm like, no, 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 I've got this. I've got it. It's it's going to be fine. But I'll just have to make sure my hands are warm enough before I start it, you know. So I used my husband's um, armpits <laughs> before I actually <laughs> Big old drafty place. So. <laughs> oh man! So wait, do you mind if we talk about Almost Famous? Sure. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I was helping out with that project recently. Oh, yeah, because there's about to be a, a big release, right? All right. Twenty years ago, last year, Almost Famous uh, came into our lives, and this year, on July 9th, a five CD, seven LP deluxe reissue. Uh, it'll be the first time all the music from the film will be released together, special vinyl, all kinds of things that go with the movie and 36 previously unreleased songs, including all six Stillwater songs and your score. And then on July 13th, Almost Famous will be released as a 4K Ultra HD, which I think I know what that is, but I know it's good. So, um, wow. Okay. 
to say that's one of my favorite movies is like an understatement. It's right up there. That's and the- I totally bought into everything. So I never realized that, you know, they weren't playing and singing. <laughs> we rehearsed a thing called Rock School that me and Peter Frampton helped out doing um, to get, you know, b- mainly Billy Crudup to look like a real rock star. Which and- you did, by the way. You really yeah. did. Yeah. It was all about the slouch when it turned out, you know, you can't, you can't hold it. You have to hold it low. You have to slouch with the guitar. You, you know, he did a really, really good job with it. Um, and you can't really tell in the end, like there's a couple of scenes where you just don't really see his fingers exactly, but it's close enough and it's, it, it worked. So who's but, singing and who's playing for real? There's uh, I, well, I, I kind of produced, those tracks with a singer. Wrote, yeah. And you wrote all the songs. Wrote the songs uh, somewhat with Cameron as well. And uh, so we had the idea to make it sort of like a conglomerate mid-level sort of rock era, mid 70, late seventies um, kind of a, a bad company meets kind of a club band, you mm-hmm. know, a, a glorified club band basically. And so we kind of wrote to that, uh, which was really fun to do. And some of the songs turned out really actually better than we expected them to. Like Fever Dog turned out to be kind of a you know um, underground hit <laughs> <laughs> along the way. Um, but the guy that I I tried a diff- bunch of different singers for the for the vocalist, and it was very an interesting time because it was. I, I went to a bunch of my Seattle guys and and they had the Seattle accent that did not represent the era for which the movie was set. And so there, there was too many would have been like fever dog. It wouldn't have been like fever dog, you know, for, from the era. So the late seventies accent had to, I had to find the singer. It took a long time for me to find the right singer and it's this guy, Marty um, Feld, Friedman or something, um, who's a big demo singer who sang a lot of demos for uh, Aerosmith and guys like that. Right. Um, and so I finally found the, sing- the sound of, of Stillwater, the singer for Stillwater. And it was way interesting uh, how the rock and roll accent had shifted to more modern era to such an extent that it was so hard to find the right singer for that Mm. particular accent. So let me ask you about uh, the hall of fame. What was that like for you when you got inducted? (laughs) Oh, it was, uh, it was really cool. It was, you know, we decided to not be political with the first lineup of guys that, you know, you're expected to kind of get back together with your lineup and in our case it was kind of uncomfortable because we'd had various relationships with some of those guys Mm -hmm. like my case two different guys which was really a bad plan if i could go back and tell my young self what not to do Mm -hmm. um don't you know have relationships inside your rock band right just take a clue from fleetwood mac you know (laughs) but um, (laughs) But then we got together for rehearsal and we were like, okay, this will be fine. We can do this. As, and we, 
the the trade-off was that we'd have our current lineup be able to do the Barracuda. Mm-hmm. We'd have first lineup do Crazy on You and the second lineup do Barracuda. So it was really exciting. It was nerve-wracking. It was kind of an emotional gerger grid, you know, kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. So let me, I got to ask you this because people tell, ask me all the time. So I don't know if it's, whether you get asked this and maybe it's a little silly, but uh, people will say, you know, Barracuda is the perfect Led Zeppelin song. You ever thought about that? What that would sound like with Robert singing? Wow. I've never really put that together in my. Everybody says to me, if someone's going to write a song for Led Zeppelin, Oh, heart Barracuda. It's the perfect Zeppelin song. That would be a cool thing. I mean, when we saw Robert that one first time at Milton Keynes, he said, I have a, I love your song Barracuda. Um, I have a portable single turntable that I carry around in my, in my hotel rooms. And I play Barracuda on that every day. So it would have been so cool, uh, you know, to hear him actually sing. He, cause he's, he had the range at, at least at that time. He had the same range. He would nail it, wouldn't he? Yeah. He would totally nail that. That's a dream. That would be a dream come true for sure. So are you going to, are you going to do some live dates? What are you going to do? Oh, yes. Um, well, there's one date so far on the books for July the 9th, right. um, where I'm going to go to Seattle mm-hmm. and play with the Seattle symphony. Oh, wow. Um, and it, it's for a lot of the new stuff, as well as a few heart songs. I'm going to have Liv Warfield from my other band. Right. I'll join me so we can do some of the heart hits as well as some of the new hits or the new song. Right. I I should presume that, you know, they could be hits, but, (laughs) um, (laughs) but I think it's going to be really special. We're going to stream it Mm -hmm. and have uh, probably not a live stream, but have it streamable soon. If somebody wants to, where do they go online? Do they go to your page or where do they go for that? SeattleSymphony.org. I believe. Okay. So you're something exactly like that. And uh, yeah. And right now you can reserve a seat. There's, it's a benefit um, for music causes in around the Seattle area. So um, it's a high ticket price and it's not going to be a lot of people at the show, the, the live show itself. But the streaming, we'll be able to hmm. everybody to share the stream from the show. Um, I think it'll probably be a little bit of editing and a little bit of hopefully not too much tuning up or anything fixing fixing wise later. But it should be readily available on many formats, as far as I know. Okay. Now, are you planning on taking uh, a band out to do? you know, songs uh, from this new album and some heart stuff or what are you going to, is there going to be a heart tour? What's, what's the plan? There's all of the above are possible. We're kind of hoping that the symphony show um, kind of fans out into more shows like that. We'll have all the, the, um, we could either either do with or without symphony shows. um, Mm -hmm. Well, with my same band guys and live Warfield in tow. Um, there's also a big offer on the heart uh, table for heart to go out in 2022, which a lot of bands are starting to do again now. Yeah. I've got my fingers crossed for all of that. Um, so yeah, I think it could be really cool to 
put on another great big show with Hard again because the last one was really fun. It was very successful. And, um, you know, we know how to do a great big – we know right. how to do a, a big rock show. Yeah. Big places. So we could – we'd have fun doing that again for sure. Do you like doing festivals? I like festivals. Um, yeah. I You know, I mean – Indoors is a little more magical, especially mm-hmm. after dark. Um, fest- I like festivals after dark in particular because then you're not in broad daylight, you know, cooking your ass off, mm-hmm. you know, going streaming for the bathrooms and stuff. You're right. kind of like, oh, come on, come back here, pay attention to me, you know. Um, people get kind of distracted during the day, daylight hours in a festival setting, but. Um, that can be more challenging. And sometimes at night too, because, you know, all those big lights shine on the stage and all the bugs show up on the stage too. So, mm. you know, you have to, you kind of have to have like a little bit of a bug situation sometimes. Right. Well, listen, I, I uh, really appreciate you taking time and um, I'm, I'm going to close with a question for you which I think you'll like. Okay. So uh, Robert Plant calls you up and he goes, listen, I'm going to do Battle of Forevermore. Are you available? And what do you say? I'd say, absolutely. I'll be right over. (laughs) (laughs) I know the, I know the uh, mandolin part, (laughs) even though it's really different from how they did it. Yeah. 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 No, I would be right, be right over. I'll get on an airplane, whatever it takes. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, um, thank you very much. Once again, good luck with the album. And we'll we'll look forward to seeing you on the road. You remember the the day the album came out? I know you do. I can tell you that Biff Kennedy brought it by the station. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. She knows. She remembers. Yeah. But yeah, not to to embarrass you, but I don't know what kind of secret you have about looking so good. But oh, my God. I mean, I'm a little older than you. And I'm like, what? Insane. It's insane. So just Keith Richards would say, just it's all about lighting, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And makeup. <laughs> okay. Thank right. you. Thanks for joining us once again. Thanks, Danny. Enjoy your, Thanks. enjoy your the rest okay. of your day and your week. And we'll look for you on the road. All right. We'll see you out there. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Well, I'm really happy to hear that uh, Nancy's got plans to tour and I'm really looking forward uh, to hearing that July 9th concert. Yeah. I think it's going to be a great matchup uh, playing with the, the symphony. She, she's just uh, someone that I feel will be on the road forever if, yeah. if possible. And Linda Perry. Uh, wow. You know, I knew a little bit about her, probably yeah. not as much as I knew about Nancy Wilson, but, Man, she's just fascinating, right? What a fascinating force of nature. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I knew who she was and I knew her stuff, but never really had met her or talked to her. And I was, I thought it was great. So you watch those YouTube videos of her doing Led Zeppelin songs, communication (laughs) breakdown and, you know, the tough ones, you know, and it's, uh, she describes it. You'll hear her describe it. And that's just how it seems. It's like she does go into another body she she's out she's having a true out-of-body experience right and she uh, does that okay let's uh let's get to our linda perry conversation so here it is hi danny hi linda 
I got a um, message from um, her name's Allison Hagendorf. She's you know does the she's like pretty big on Spotify. She's like the big you know rock playlist person over there, and she sent me um, uh, email saying, "Oh my God, I had no idea you did." Zeppelin, I just discovered all these videos of you singing Zeppelin, and oh my God, I, you have a whole new meaning to me now. And I was like, oh yeah, shoot. Okay, so we were talking about Led Zeppelin, and obviously uh, they're not easy songs to uh, sing, play, or even try to do. But you, you seem to really—they were made for you. I feel like <laughs> I made that. I, you know, because we heard um, Anne and Nancy Wilson at the uh, center honors. And that was great. That was amazing. But when you do them, it's just like, you're just, you're, that's like your thing all of a sudden. It's amazing. Well, one, I have every single time I have covered Zeppelin, I have a very phenomenal band because that's the other trick. So I was singing along all the time and I, I'm a good chameleon. Like I can chameleon, um, you know, certain tones and not voices, but certain tones like Robert Plant has a certain tone and it, you know, it kind of cuts through. But the, the trick is a lot of mistake that a lot of bands who cover Zeppelin, what they do is you have to listen to the live Zeppelin live stuff. Because that's where the true Zeppelin shows up. And then on top of it, the drummers always think, you know, Bonham is <coughs> and he's not. He just played a big set and, you know, he just had really great a vibe. He had a great vibe, but he wasn't smacking. So what happens is the, 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 the players think Led Zeppelin rock and roll. But when you really listen to their albums they're not full on there's a lot of melodic structure happening from everybody um um you know john paul jones i mean just the stuff he's doing um page and robert is like finessing his way through and then bonham is just keeping these very solid you know interesting grooves down and that is the essence so when i've done zeppelin i've always made sure i had a band that understood that we're not going to go thrash around on stage and rock out. We're going to play Zeppelin the way they're supposed to be played. And then I, when I'm singing it, I just, I don't know. I just love singing like Robert Plant. It just, because there's a certain swagger that he has and the way he elongates certain words and cuts off other words. And I mean, sometimes I don't even know what the fuck I'm saying. I can't, you know, I don't, I, you know, sometimes I just ad lib, you know, I might not know a song all the way complete and I start forgetting all the lyrics and, I don't get that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and you can get away with it <laughs> because at the end of the day, it's all one beautiful feel, you know, and people are grooving and vibing off of the feel of what Led Zeppelin brought to the table. Um, you mentioned about being a chameleon. I'll go one step farther. I feel like you could channel, you can channel uh, Led Zeppelin. Uh, you can channel uh, Pink. And what I mean by that is you can write for somebody in a way that you kind of become them before you give the song to them. Mm. Do you agree? Yeah, I do. I mean, I um, 
it's interesting because I feel like I was told by somebody, you know, you write for yourself. And I'm like, you know, you write songs that cater to your voice. I'm like, that's not true at all. You know, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't, I do not. I don't, I do so many different things. My, the, the thing is, is my voice can do so many different things. I can be way down here and I can sing all this. I mean, I can be low, you know, and then I can, hi, my love is anything. You know, I can do so many weird things with my voice because I, I play with it. I love seeing what I'm capable of doing. Just like a guitar player wants to figure out all, all their riffs. I can do all that, you know, but I do it with soul. I do it with heart, you know, so I don't riff. I'd feel. And um, so I feel like um, the chameleon part is, or channeling part is, if people wanted a Linda Perry record, I'd just give them a Linda Perry record. But if an artist is coming to me and they're wanting their sound and they want something unique, that's what I'm going to give them, something that is unique to them, not unique for me to write. And, and I think that's super important as a producer, as a songwriter, is to understand who you're working with. They have to feel safe. They need to be heard. And you want to bring something different to the table. Okay, so you're unhappy with this. Let me think about it. Well, I can't go too far this way with you because that's not believable. So why don't we figure out how to mesh this and this and put it together and put some kind of little magic sauce on there. And then, but always, and I say this with full belief, it doesn't matter if an R&B singer comes to me, but if we write a song that sounds like a country song and it's got a lot of heart, that will fly. I feel 100% that emotions will transcend whatever genre and people look past it and can go, that's just a great song. And that's kind of what I, my goal is. It's just just write great song. You've done that, so <laughs> and more. So, yeah, Linda, I know that you probably get this question all the time, but it's something that uh, I'm sure you get asked more than even the normal. Is what what, what advice do you give to up and coming songwriters when they ask you for advice? Well, I think it's very important to not edit yourself while you are writing in the process. I think I may have said that. Um, before it's just like it's very important because you know you're in the middle you know oh i'm just gonna pick up my guitar and i'm gonna be all coming through no no i don't want to do that you say no 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 i want to do that but the initial reaction was to go to the g i love you coming down the window pane whatever i'm thinking whatever you know so just go with it just go with it just Finish the song. Stop trying to edit it along its way because it doesn't sound like whatever concoction you have in your head. Because sometimes our head is obviously, to me, the worst um, guide. We need to just follow where the song wants to be go. And then finish the song. And if you don't like the song, write another one. You know? But don't edit because sometimes our edits are so brutal that we lost that magic that came down from wherever that wanted to be written. And we just totally screwed it all, all up with our thought process and overthinking and being doubtful and criticizing and the editor and all that stuff. And then there was just like this really beautiful song that just wanted to 
plant down in your soul and be written, but we just fucked it all up. Any time in your uh, career that you thought about moving to New York, I I, I bet a lot of people think you're from New York. Am I wrong? Uh, Um. Wait, what? Well, I'm from, (laughs) all right, so I'm from the East Coast and I've lived in LA since 1988. Um, I came out here in 1980, but you know, first time you come out, you get your ass kicked, you move back home, you rethink everything and then you come back out again. So I come out in 88 and I'm here for all these years, but to a lot of people, I still seem like an East Coast girl. Like I'm, they go New York, Philly, you know, so um. I don't take that as a comment. I just take that for whatever it is. So I'm just wondering if people think that you're from the East Coast only because of your vibe and your. No, I, I have had that. I Yes, I've okay. had many people ask me if I'm, you know, from the East Coast. And I'm like, no, I was born in Boston, but I was only there for one year. I didn't have an I didn't I didn't wasn't there long enough to get an attitude, you know. So I feel like um, when I go to New York, I love it. I I'm very at home there. Um, I, I caught on very quickly. The very first time my, I went to New York was with four non blondes and we showed up and we got in like at three in the morning, I believe. And I opened up the windows and the energy was just like, I just wanted to go outside and nobody would let me go outside. They're like, you can't go walking around New York at, you know, three thirty, four o'clock in the morning. I'm like, but I need to. So I just stayed up all night. And then when it hit five in the morning, I just left and I went walking all over the place. And I was like, it felt like, oh, I get it. This is kind of my groove, you know? And so I love going to New York. I feel very New Yorker. Um, but I, you know, I'm a California girl. I, I was brought up in California and I don't know why I have that attitude, but I just do. I think it's my survival. You know, when you go to New York, there's a certain, I'm not saying that everybody's, uh, uh, um, you know, beaten up or anything at all. It's just, there's just a different way people walk in New York and talk, you know, and act and very direct. And, you know, there's some rude, there's some super nice, you know, but, um, you know, I just, I just can be that way. I don't know why, but I can just, but I, for me, I think from my point of view, why it feels like I'm a New Yorker is because I'm a survivor. So when you're a survivor, you have to have certain guards up. I'm always looking when I'm driving, I'm a defensive driver. I'm waiting for someone to make a mistake because I'm always, you know, I'm always watching for someone. I'm always looking behind me. I walk very carefully, you know, but I'm still free and I'm still having fun, but I, you know, I'm, I'm walking around ready to duke it out in the, with a smile, you know, like I hide my gloves, but I'm be the first one you come at me. I'll deck you down before you even have a thought to, to, to do any damage. Well, it comes from being self-sufficient. It comes from, yeah, I get that. I, well, get I think that it's up. just the abusive parents. <laughs> <laughs> or you want to duck next that's, time. That's <laughs> that simple. I was brought up in not a very good atmosphere. So you had to always be on guard because God knows what was going to come at you. So I feel like part of me just feels like, yes, I'm so glad I got those lessons early on because I am a fighter. Like I'm not going down anytime soon. And I really do um, thank my mom for making me tough. And it comes in handy all the time. So it's like, sure, it wasn't 
great how I got there. But now that I'm here, I'm pretty thankful that I was able to survive. And because now I just feel like, yeah, I can take on so many things. Yeah, it's because it's hard to watch our parents fail. And and a lot of them had some really good reasons for that kind of thing. And, and when you have tragedy early in your life, I did too, because um, I lost my sister at an early age. And, you know, being so immersed in the 70s, and I always joke about how I feel sorry for people that weren't around to do the good cocaine and when the quaaludes were real, <laughs> you know, because it was so great, you know, and I'm not going to be walking around going, oh, you know, but my sister died of a drug overdose. And I still feel that way, you know, so yeah, it's very conflicting. But you, um, you make it personal sometimes. I, I read that uh, when you gave, when you wanted to work with Courtney Love, I think you used the words that um, you wanted to save her. You thought you could save her. And yeah. when I read that, I, I just, that just warmed my heart in a way, but I, I just, I, I could relate to that. I think we all at some point thought, oh, geez, somebody save her, you know? Yeah. I think that, you know, when we get into that place, that's just ego coming in and messing with you because it's like, we can't save anybody. You know, right. we can do the best that we can, but truly, you know, that cheesy saying, you can't save somebody who doesn't want to save themselves. So, yeah. you know, with someone like Courtney, I just love her. I think she's so talented. And I would just like be like, no, stick to the music, dude. If you just stay with the music, I promise like you're going to be like the biggest thing ever, you know, because, and not that she wasn't already, but th it would be all for her music, you know? So, you know, it's like, it's, there's certain people that that's just the cho choice that they make and you can't. And then that you start chasing that when that happens and you start trying to save, you're just chasing and you're getting obsessive because now your ego is kicking in. It's like, no, I said I was going to save her and I'm going to do it. So that coming out of my mouth was probably the most juvenile statement I've ever made in my whole career, you know, saying something like that. I can do my best to provide safety. I can do my best to provide really good um, information and um, criticism and honesty, but in no way can I save anybody. None of us can, but yet, you know, we try so much. We try to do that because we feel like maybe something that we've gone through or something we can say can turn it around, but it, it, that's impossible. Yeah. Own, yeah. So um, I think we've got time for one more. Uh, okay. So my, I have a million questions, but I'll just ask you one more. So it's, I know that you came from what you, what people say, like a musical and creative background, but did you have any formal piano lessons or guitar lessons, or were you always the, just pick it up by ear as they say? Yes. I pick it up by ear. Um, wow. So I, um, we were not well off, so I couldn't, we, I didn't get instruments. And my mom one time went to Tijuana cause she knew I, wanted a guitar and you know we lived in San Diego Tijuana's right there she came back from Tijuana with a little guitar and you know but it's one of those guitars where you you know they just fall apart you can't really keep tuning or anything like that so and when I was in school I was I wanted to try violin and my mom said we can't do violin it's that's too masculine I'm all 
violin, you know, and then I wanted to play piano and she's like, you can't play piano. And I'm like, why? And she's like, um, I don't know why. And so I came home from school one day and there's this man there and he's like, let me see. And my mom's like, this is the piano teacher. And he's come here to see if you can play piano. And he's like, let me see your hands. And I, you know, I'm like seven or eight years old and I'm putting up my tiny little hands and I'm like, you know, he's like, oh no, no, no you'll never be able to play piano. Your hands are too small. And, but now I'm convinced my mom, you know, violin would have been too expensive because you have to, I would go to the classes and just tell them I didn't, my violin didn't come in. And then they kicked me out and found out I was never having, I never got a violin. So sorry, you know, and then piano is very expensive because you'd have to get a piano. And again, we didn't have the money. So instead of my mom just saying, we don't have the money, she just made it out to be like, I could never do any of this stuff, which was kind of mean, you know? And, um, so I remember joining this guitar class and here I'm like, I'm just going to try it again, you know? And so I go to the guitar class and I'm just sitting in there and, you know, it's like, okay, everybody whip out your guitars. And I'm like, I don't have one. And this time I was just honest. I said, I don't have a guitar. And then this kid had an extra one. He's like, listen, I'll bring you a guitar. I have an extra one. And so I was like, awesome. And so then when they start teaching the, you know, how to write and read, I just, I couldn't pick it up. So they would play songs like here, this is the song that you guys have to learn. And it'll always be some like top 40 hit, you know? And so I would just learn how to play it by ear. And it wasn't as written but it was the song and I could play it. I could sing it at the end of the class. And the teacher would be like, are you doing this all by your ear? And I'm like, yeah, I, I don't see, I can't see the music. I, I see what you're showing, but I, my brain isn't picking it up. And then he was the sweetest. And he said, okay, I tell you what, I'm going to let you stay in the class, but you're going to go for the assignments. Just go sit in the room and you figure it out, the song, and then come at the end of the day and you play the song. And that's how I got through guitar. And, um, and that's how I started learning. I just picked it up and listened, you know, and just figured out what the chord structures were. I had no idea what I was playing. Piano, basically the same thing. After Four Non Blondes got our first paycheck, I went and bought a piano. And, well, actually, that's not even true. I forgot. Ira Jaffe from um, Famous Music, my publishing guy, I asked him to buy me a piano and I paid for it, but he reimbursed me. And so I went and bought a piano. He sent me back the money and the piano just sat in my house. I never even touched it. I was so intimidated by it, but I started little by little going, you know, pinkering on it. And then after a few months, I was just like, and starting to write songs on piano. So I can't read music at all, but I can definitely hear it all. Wow. And and how great is it that you had a teacher and a couple of people along the way that that recognized your gift? And yeah, I just- wish I remember that kid's name because he was so it was the sweetest at that time in my life when there was no sweetness at all. It was a very big moment for me because it was like this really nice, friendly gesture of something that I wanted to do that my mom had been stopping me from doing this this kid just came out of nowhere and was like, it, to me, it was like, I believe in you. And wow. then the teacher by doing that was him saying, I believe in you, you know? So wow. 
I think that's why I'm so open to trying to help, you know, because I believe that that moment was such a, I don't even think I realized how big of a moment that was for me, you know? So I just feel like I'm always wanting to share that with other people like here I can help, you know, and I did, I've, I've bought in keyboards for people. I've bought in so many instruments for schools you know, kids that don't have, they're sitting yeah. in there with no instruments. I've like donated so much. And that is huge. That. <laughs> thank you very much. We'll really come back to this, but I literally <laughs> like, I was like, shoot, I've been, hey, you guys, thank you so much thank for you, like, all the sweet words and no. kindness. And, and I, I truly do appreciate it. Thank you. So do we so I much for you guys. Just call okay. me anytime. Oh, okay. don't say that. that. <laughs> I, I mean that. All right. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye guys. Bye. Wow. Again, that was such a great conversation. I, I love the fact, no pun, that you uh, asked her about working with Courtney Love. I thought that was great. Yeah. I, you know, it, I had to. And I love that she uh, went so deep in there, you know, and described exactly how a lot of us feel about Courtney Love and people like her. You know, we we, we want to yeah. help. We want to save, but you really can't. Yeah. But hey, you know, uh she made Courtney's music, she, you know, she gave uh, Courtney some music that really helped her with her career. So she did mm-hmm. in a way yeah, help her out and save her. But yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's, uh, that's going to do, uh, do it for our show this week. Uh, just want to remind you to check out, you know, all the previous episodes are available. Uh, so if you're into Springsteen or the doors or just, you know, the kind of stories that you hear on our show and you want to hear more, check out the other episodes and if you want to contact us, please, you can send an email to hello at therockpodcast.com. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, but the best way is via email, hello at therockpodcast.com. Any final thoughts, Anita? Well, I just want to thank everybody for all the nice comments they're making. And I want you to know that we really do uh, not only appreciate them, we read them all, we think about it. Uh, you know, any suggestions you have, uh, we really want to be interactive with you. So reach out to us and um, share us with the ones you love. Okay. Until next time. Goodbye. Bye.